Last week, we left off discussing Lincoln as colonizationist with Phil Magnus, and Phil explained Lincoln's Pennsylvania gambit in 1860, run as a tariff man in Pennsylvania, and lukewarm on the subject for the national stage, conveniently ignore the record when it is a blemish, and hype it up when the sound bites play well. Let's pick it up right there. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. So colonization is a part of Lincoln's original plan to tackle uh, to tackle the problem of uh, of slavery during the Civil War. And this appears at several points early in his presidency. In 1861, he delivers a message to Congress. Uh, says it's basically his first attempt at uh, carving out a platform. By then, the war's already raging. Uh, but he sees slavery as a component of this. He sees slavery as the clear irritant that caused the war. Uh, Lincoln's unambiguous about this. Uh, uh, even on the eve of his inauguration, he writes a secret letter to Alexander Stevens uh, as the incoming vice president of the Confederacy and had formerly served in Congress with Lincoln as an old Whig. Uh, so they knew each other, but he writes a secret letter to Stevens and says, uh, uh, you know, I don't think you and I personally are, um, are enemies. Uh, and in fact, I wish you well, but, uh, but we have this issue of slavery. This is the rub between our, our two uh, sections of the country. Uh, you, you see slavery as good. We see it as wrong. Uh, and I don't see a, a way that we can reconcile that rub. Uh, so, so this message is very, very clear on Lincoln's mind. He sees slavery as the problem. Uh, so that provokes the question, how do you solve this irritant that caused this horrendous war that's falling uh, around us, that caused the whole secession movement? How do you deal with this irritant? So he starts to articulate a, uh, an anti-slavery policy that's premised on that old Whig formula. Uh, so he's bringing back the Henry Clay ideas. You see this in his speeches, and this is basically we need compensated emancipation done over a very gradual schedule. And, and some versions of it that he proposed, they thought that they'd phase this in between about 1860 and 1900 would be kind of the capstone date when slavery is all gone. Uh, so gradual compensated emancipation. And then we tie it to colonization abroad. We make federal resources available to uh, basically pay for the transport of former slaves. Uh, first, they look at Liberia as the most prominent and earliest of the colonies, but Lincoln's also uh, much more interested in the Caribbean and Central and South America as potential locales because, uh, uh, A, it's closer, so it's a lot cheaper. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot more of a, um, a, a viable mechanism for the mass transport of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, but the second thing that he wants is this is a way of expanding American influence in the tropics in doing so in a way that's actually uh, anti-slavery. It counters the old southern uh, uh, desire to acquire the Caribbean as future slave states. Uh, so that's a part of his, his calculus here. Uh, he does have one stipulation that he actually adheres to pretty rigidly. He says that colonization must be voluntary. In other words, uh, African-Americans must make this choice to move abroad themselves. We're going to provide them the ships. We're going to provide them the money to do so. Uh, but uh, we want this choice to be made on their own. So uh, he, he's a little bit more uh, uh, moderate on that issue than some of the, uh, the, the deportation-oriented versions of the colonization movement. Uh, and that 
actually is adhered to pretty rigidly in his presidency. Uh, what this amounts to is in uh, in 1862, he sec- secures a succession of uh, of legislation through Congress to uh, to basically start pilot programs for freed slaves. This is done in conjunction with his first anti-slavery overture. So in 1862, uh, he passes a bill through Congress. Uh, this is uh, almost a year before the Emancipation Proclamation, and this is to liberate the slaves of the District of Columbia. Uh, so it's one area that Congress had direct domain on. They didn't need a uh, constitutional amendment to free the slaves of the District of Columbia because it's a, a federal district. So what they do is they compensate the slave owners and they set up a colonization fund uh, for the freed slaves of the district. And this is very conscious in Lincoln's policy. Uh, two days after he he signs the act into law, freeing the uh, the slaves of the District of Columbia, he actually has a private meeting with two ambassadors that came from the Republic of Liberia, and it's specifically about how to launch this colonization program uh, that is now uh, has a legal foothold uh, because of this uh, this act that he signed uh, a couple of days prior. So, uh, and this this is something that's almost entirely missing from uh, most historical accounts of the, of it, but it's prominent there in his policy. Uh, once he obtains funding for it, uh, he moves full speed ahead on trying to get a colonization policy off the ground. Uh, he actually hires a uh, a minister by the name of James Mitchell, who's a former agent of the American Colonization Society. And one of those guys I mentioned that went through Springfield, Illinois in the early 1850s and met Lincoln. And they, uh, they, they kind of started a friendship of letters over the years. So when Lincoln's president, uh, he writes Mitchell and says, hey, will you come to Washington and be my colonization agent for this new agency that I'm, I'm setting up? Uh, so that gets off the ground. Uh, the next big move is the uh, Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation uh, in September 1862, and this is the one that's famously tied uh, to the Battle of Antietam uh, to signal that as of January 1st of the next year, if this war is not over, uh, I'm going to proclaim the slaves free. Well, in that proclamation, he also indicates that colonization is the intended objective of the government uh, to be paired with emancipation. And at the same time, he's already engaged in negotiations with uh, several private contractors to establish colony sites across the Caribbean and other parts of the world. So uh, around then he's looking at a a program in Haiti uh, formed with a a kind of an alliance with the Haitian government, uh, but also a contractor. He's looking in, uh, in what's now modern day Panama was then part of Colombia uh, on the isthmus of, of, of Panama, uh, he specifically thought that setting up a freed slave colony there is kind of an American access point to the West, to the Pacific. Uh, so he gives this speech to actually a group of free African-Americans in the District of Columbia. And he says uh, um, he's urging them to embrace and join the colonization effort. We want you to go down there basically as sons of America and, and stake out this new colony and he says, and I'll quote, he says, this colony is to be the great highway between the oceans. Uh, basically, he's telling them, uh, we want to fund and dig a Panama Canal down there. Uh, and this will be the American imprint that allows us to link the Pacific and the Atlantic, uh, allows us to link California to the East Coast. Uh, so all these great uh, post-slavery, post-war plans he has associated with colonization. Uh, and this continues uh 
as a consistent theme of his presidency through uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, here's where historians, uh, for the most part, have dropped the ball, and that is uh, the dealing with the post-emancipation phase of Lincoln's colonization ventures, his career. And what happens is on January 1st, 1863, Lincoln signs the official final Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the famous one that declares the, uh, the slaves forever free. Uh, this, he starts to execute on this immediately, sends notices out to all of his generals, uh, all the, uh, the agents of the military, that you are to free the slaves. Uh, so it, it almost instantly transforms the war effort. The issue is that the final Emancipation Proclamation doesn't say anything about colonization in its text. And quite a few historians have uh, misinterpreted this as, oh, well, Lincoln maybe may have shifted his views of colonization. Uh, he decided that uh, uh, now that uh, slavery is ended through the proclamation, we don't need to deal with this. Uh, so over most of the 20th century, they came up with these elaborate theories of why Lincoln wasn't uh, as sincerely committed to colonization as uh, his public rhetoric seemed to be. Uh, they thought that, well, this is just a, uh, a lullaby that will, uh, will draw the public in with a moderate measure so I can execute on this more radical uh, abolition me measure through the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, the problem with this whole set of theories, though, is that the night before he signs the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln is up till about uh, 10 or 11 p.m. at the White House in a secret meeting with a senator from Kansas, uh, the Postmaster General Montgomery Blair, uh, and uh, a, a member of uh, one of the uh, organizations that they were trying to contract with to establish a colony in Haiti, in modern-day Haiti. Uh, so... He's actually negotiating this, uh, the, the terms of this pilot program to launch a colony uh, immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. Uh, so what happens is the next day or the next morning, uh, the, um, uh, as everything is being prepared at the White House to sign the Emancipation Proclamation at noon, uh, this colonization uh, uh, agent that he was trying to contract with returns to the White House and something like 45 minutes before he signs the Emancipation Proclamation, he also signs the contract uh, to launch this Haitian colony. Uh, then the next day, Lincoln's private secretary pins an anonymous editorial to one of the, the Washington, D.C. newspapers that basically says it, it, it's the White House is a, a unofficial but uh, uh, but intended spin on what the proclamation is supposed to do is just, through the president's great measure uh, signed yesterday, we've initiated a new phase in uh, the anti-slavery policy of the United States. And one of, one of that is the uh, emancipation of the slaves themselves. But second, we've committed the government to colonization. And they found years later uh, through uh, copies existing in the secretary's personal papers that this actually came straight out of the White House. Uh, so the evidence is abundant that the Emancipation Proclamation is con uh, considered a component of the president's uh, colonization strategy. Uh, so he does continue these e efforts over the course of the next year. They launched a colony uh, that did go to Haiti. It ends up in disaster. Uh, it's, it's mismanaged and misfunded, succumbs to political infighting, and uh, it's actually hit by a, a wave of uh, smallpox that, uh, right after the colony lands. 
so all sorts of disasters that uh, befall it. Uh, but he also continued to try to uh, form agreements with other countries, uh, the European empires that had Caribbean colonies. So in mid-1863, he signed an agreement with Great Britain to send uh, freed slaves to its colonies, uh, mostly British Honduras or Belize, uh, and then Guyana. Uh, in late 1863, the U.S. government actually signed a treaty with the king of, uh, of uh, the Netherlands to uh, establish a colony in uh, Dutch Suriname. Uh, it was never ratified uh, because it succumbed again to uh, political infighting. Uh, but over the course of the next year, you see him actually moving pretty aggressively on this policy geared to the execution of emancipation. Uh, what happens to it? Well, it's the same thing that afflicts almost any and every large-scale government program of this type is uh, by 1864, uh, every colonization venture that uh, the, the president has pursued and has put out on the table has more or less succumbed to political infighting, to corruption, and a variety of plague disasters that um, are associated with uh, uh, programs of the scale. Uh, there are members of Congress that are getting personally rich on taking colonization contracts and basically running off with the money and never actually doing anything with it. Um, there's a, 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 the, the instance that I mentioned of the Haitian venture that actually does launch. Well, very quickly, they find that people are embezzling funds from it, so the supply ship never arrives uh, to support the colony after it lands in this little island off the coast of Haiti. Uh, so uh, the horror of it is, is the freed slaves themselves are basically left to fend for themselves to, uh, against nature with no supplies that had been promised, and they end up having to be rescued by the U.S. Navy about a year later. Uh, so it's a succession of disasters, uh, political corruption, infighting ends up prompting Congress to suspend the funding for the colonization agenda of the president in, uh, in mid-1864, and that basically puts it on ice. It puts it on hiatus uh, as something that Lincoln would uh, be able to execute on, uh, at least insofar as the war continued. Uh, and then the big debate among historians is, uh, did he ever intend to revive this program after the Civil War is finished? And I'm on the side that argues uh, there is a, a fair amount of evidence yet, uh, that, yes, he did, although there's a twist on it. Um, it's, uh, by this point, it's not so much Lincoln trying to revive this retrograde old uh, Henry Clay-style scheme, but uh, <coughs> excuse me, if, if you believe the accounts of what Lincoln's saying on the uh, uh, right before his assassination, when, he, when this uh, uh, topic uh, reportedly comes up in a few conversations that are recounted years later, what he's saying is he's looking out upon the, uh, uh, the defeated South and realizing that Southerners are not going to accept uh, freed blacks as their equals. He's recognizing racial violence on the horizon. He's anticipating the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And he says, well, maybe we should turn to colonization again as something of like a safety valve to allow these people to escape uh, what's going to be horrendous oppression, to give them the option, if they so want, to migrate abroad uh, and set out on their own and have a place that will uh, recognize their political rights, will allow them to uh, uh, engage in self-government, allow them basic freedoms that uh, he fears genuinely that the South is going to deny them after the war. So in a weird way, 
uh, it does revive this this uh, oddity of a retrograde policy from before the war. But uh, by the end of his life, uh, he is probably looking at it for reasons that are are uh, uh, it's even more than benevolent. He, he is genuinely concerned about the problem of the racial direction that the country was going in. And he's scrambling about for a way to make sure that this uh, uh, this horror of, uh, of black codes and racial violence that we actually see after his uh, his assassination uh, doesn't come into being. Yeah. Now, it seems to me at least that historians don't want to highlight this aspect of his career uh, because today it smacks so much of segregation. Um, And sure, it's it's anti-slavery, but it's also definitely segregationist as opposed to the radical Republicans and their integrationist vision of society. And – Right. So they would, you know, some people have even gone to the extreme, I think, uh, of accusing you of basically <laughs> not forging Lincoln's signature, but, you know, passing it, passing it off on your audience as as though it was Lincoln's signature on some of these, you know, uh, colonization documents. Like, right. like you just are, are uh, inventing some sort of, oh, it looks like an L. Maybe that's an I. Uh, yeah, I can see that being an N. Like, you know, come on. Um, yeah, yeah. You can you can recognize that this man was problematic for God's sakes. And, right, you know, right. I wonder if we could close out on this. You know, it seemed to me for a yeah, long yeah. time that maybe maybe there's something to this colonization idea in that it history would look very different if you had black nation states in the deep south or if you had American colonies that actually got the government's support during Reconstruction um, right. that turned into, you know, incipient um, black uh, nation states of the 20th century that – you know, could have been a focal point for what became Pan-Africanism and other sorts of ideologies of black power and liberation. I mean, there's a lot that could be said for the existence of a, a separate national unit specifically reserved for people who've been abused by the U.S. government for so long. Um, you know, you could say the same thing about Native Americans. Uh, so I, you know, I wonder if if there's not something. This is sort of what Lysander Spooner wanted to do, um, and. You know, is is there not something that can be said for this colonization movement? Uh, maybe historians just don't want to have to say it because it feels right. ugly well, to them. Right, right. And this is the whole historiographical debate. Uh, where does Lincoln fit into all of this? And unfortunately, after the war, after Lincoln's dead, he no longer has a voice uh, to articulate uh, his own position in it. Uh, what happens? Well, immediately anyone and everyone tries to claim him as their own. Uh, so this is the problem that uh, that historians grapple with, and it's also one of the reasons why I think they've gone astray. Uh, so yes, on the colonization idea, there is actually a very vibrant African-American uh, black immigration movement that parallels this, and it has a tenuous relationship with the white-led colonization ventures, but at times they're trying to seek out partnerships, trying to find common ground. Uh, one example, Alexander Crummel. Uh, who's a 19th century abolitionist, uh, is basically the father of Pan-Africanism. He meets with Abraham Lincoln to discuss colonization during the middle of the Civil War. Uh, he's a, a, an agent that's uh, that's working with the government of Liberia. Uh, so there is a direct connection there. There's another individual that I've done quite a bit of work on. Uh, it's an African-American from Illinois, so a free black northerner, 
by the name of John Willis Maynard. He's best known as the first African-American to win elections to the United States Congress, uh, which he does um, after the Civil War in 1868, although Congress turns around and they deny him his seat. Uh, they, they had an election challenge, so they used that as a racial pretext to exclude him from Congress. Uh, so really horrendous type of a, a treatment. But Maynard uh, is involved in the immigration movement, uh, not because he wants to deport black people, of which he's won. Uh, he, he, he views it as our best chance in the world. And he says this as simple as his speeches as, a, as an African-American. This is our best chance in the world uh, to set out on our own and have a country where our rights will be respected, where, all, where our humanity will be respected, where we can have self-government. Uh, so that element is absolutely there. It continues all the way into the 20th century. Uh, Marcus Garvey, in a sense, is a descendant of that. But you also have uh, the counterpart, which is the Frederick Douglass side. Douglass is a critic of colonization uh, because he views it as kind of this weird paternalism coming in from abroad, uh, and weird paternalism coming in and being imposed by uh, uh, by the white politicians. Uh, he's saying, you know, we were born in America, too. We have as much of a stake in this continent and this country as you do. Uh, how would you deny us? Why aren't you colonizing yourself? Uh, I mean, you, you should no more expect us to leave than you would expect yourself to leave. That's kind of his message back uh, to the, uh, the white colonizationists. So that dynamic's there. The third twist... And this is where I think a lot of the uh, the historical reputation uh, goes uh, in strange directions for the movement. And that is around the turn of the century, there's this other character by the name of Thomas F. Dixon. And some of your uh, listeners may, may recognize that he's the author of the book that becomes the movie The Birth of a Nation, which is this homage to the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, it basically reignites the Klan as a movement in the early 20th century when this movie is made based on Dixon's book. Dixon had a very odd view of the Civil War, very obviously. He's a racist. He's a white supremacist. He glorifies the Klan as saving and redeeming the post-war South against the um, uh, what, what he portrayed as like this really awful racist caricature of freed blacks in the South. Uh, so this, it's horrendous from start to finish, this book. But one thing Dixon does, and it's not so much present in the movie, but it's there in his book and his writings. Dixon actually liked Abraham Lincoln uh, for all the oddities of oddities. So this militant pro-Southerner Klansman guy who loves Abraham Lincoln, and he thinks, he comes up with this elaborate theory that had Lincoln not been assassinated, he would have taken the nation on a different course and part of that different course would be deporting the black people. Uh, so Dixon misinterprets and twists and turns around Lincoln's colonization speeches. So you get this vision of Lincoln by the 1920s being pushed by a white supremacist as uh, if he's one of their own, as opposed to being the great emancipator. Uh, so that really soils and turns the, uh, the direction of how historians have grappled with this issue uh, in a very negative way. Uh, so in a sense, it's been kind of unpackaging um, the political propaganda that Dixon entered into the equation of how Lincoln's been treated on colonization. So you mentioned, uh, you know, historians today, uh, the impulse has been to disassociate him from this movement uh, through various uh, uh, arguments that don't really hold up. So, you, you know, you mentioned uh, this debate over documents of whether they're authentically containing Lincoln's signatures, the one in question 
is an agreement he signed with the British government in 1863 that I discovered a copy of in the U.S. National Archives. Uh, but it's a, it's a secretary's copy, so it's not the original one he signed. Uh, in fact, we don't know exactly what happened to the original one he signed, but um, it's proof of its provenance. The secretary's copies entered in, and there are other secretary's copies that are delivered to the British legation, the British embassy in downtown D.C. Uh, British government, uh, so the, the legation officer sends this back to the prime minister in London. Uh, so they record a copy of it. There's a copy in the British National Archives um, in their foreign office. Uh, the foreign secretary in London dispatches it to all the co colonial governors across the Caribbean. So uh, uh, pretty soon you've got like half a dozen copies of this order, this agreement signed by Abraham Lincoln that's made its way across the Caribbean. And yet historians, at least some historians, have been very reluctant to even admit this into evidence uh, because they don't want to believe the story. They don't want to uh, deal with or grapple with the complications that this does for Lincoln's uh, racial legacy. And I'll end on this note that I think it's important to deal with these complications. Um, you know, Lincoln is very much a figure of his time, even though he's also kind of a figure for the ages. He's the great emancipator, just one of the, the single most important acts in American history. And we'll give him all credit in the world for that. But at the same time, you have to understand him in his own context, follow the evidence where it leads. Uh, and that evidence adds this nuance, this dimension uh, to him that involves something that we do see today as racially retrograde. Although if you start probing even a little bit deeper than that, you start seeing the motives behind it. It's not something he's pursuing out of malice so much as here's a guy that's trying to grapple with the greatest problem in American history. And just like anyone else in that era, there are no clean solutions to it. There are no uh, easy ways to fix slavery. And this just so happens to be the one thing that he's trying and one of, uh, among many things that he's trying. So where I come down on Lincoln is I put myself in kind of a, a middle category of historians. Uh, some of us are referred to as, as the Lincoln realists. Uh, so you have these idealists that try to champion him as a, a secret radical abolitionist. Uh, and then you have kind of this uh, uh, this other end of the spectrum where uh, there are neo-Confederates. There are uh, 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 people that, uh, that, that spend entire careers bashing and hating on Lincoln. Uh, and they distort history as well in, a, in, in almost the complete opposite direction. Uh, so my call is more to reorient our understanding of Lincoln uh, to uh, that midpoint that grapples with the complexities of the man, that grapples with uh, uh, some of the moral issues that are raised by his actions, but also understands them in the context of his time. And I think he emerges uh, better than most around him. Uh, I think he emerges as someone that uh, we can duly credit, but we can also duly criticize uh, for the, uh, the nuances of his individual policies, including colonization. But at the end of the day, we also recognize that he is not someone motivated by racial hatred. He's someone that's motivated primarily by trying to deal with and end this great problem of American history, which is slavery. Our thanks again to Phil Magnus for joining us on the show. He now holds the record for most frequent guest on Liberty Chronicles. And be sure to check out his books, Colonization After Emancipation, what is Classical Liberal History? And his forthcoming volume with Jason Brennan, Cracks in the Ivory Tower.
Thanks for listening. Liberty Chronicles is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Liberty Chronicles, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.